In order to answer the questions that we started with about generalizing quantum computing, is it possible to take inspiration from these kind of laws, the principles about possible and impossible transformations that already exist in physics, and generalize them and uh, formulate the whole of physics in terms of these statements? Is that going to give us, as a byproduct, also a generalization of the theory of computation? This is a conversation with Chiara Maletto, a research fellow at the physics department of the University of Oxford on beyond quantum computation, constructor theory. We cover what lies ahead of quantum theory and of the universal quantum computer, specifically the logical approach that treats basic assumptions as general principles about possible and impossible transformations rather than as dynamical laws and initial conditions. This approach is called constructor theory. Chiara describes its application to a handful of interconnected problems within information theory, thermodynamics, and even quantum gravity. This physics of can and can't may be the first step towards the ultimate generalization of the universal quantum computer, which von Neumann called the universal constructor. She just published a book based on many of the ideas that she's discussing in this talk, entitled The Science of Can and Can't. Enjoy! So the best way to understand, uh, I think, constructive theory is to start with something that's possibly um, uh, well known, let's say, at least um, uh, the name is, is now uh, quite, quite uh, present in the news, which is quantum computation or quantum computing. And the, the way I, I like to start these kind of discussions is by... Um, by reminding ourselves what quantum computation really is. And I think, uh, you know, if, if Scott was here, Scott Aaron was here at some point discussing about this, you probably got the gist of it uh, quite, quite nicely from him. Um, but I guess what I want to say here is that um, the, the quantum, the, the theory of quantum computation is a very interesting place from the conceptual point of view, because It's a place where um, technology, so applications and things that can have an impact on, on the you know, life of people uh, in, in everyday uh, life, um, meet the, the foundations of physics. Uh, and this is very rare because usually you have these very abstract theories of physics that seem quite distant from uh, what we do in our everyday lives. And then we have, we have um, applications that can come out of those Uh, for example, GPS coming out of general relativity. Uh, but, but this only happens after a long time uh, since the proposal of the theory. Whereas in the case of quantum computing, I think the uh, theoretical ideas were proposed uh, in the 80s. And then it was immediately clear that uh, this theory would, on the one hand, deliver lots of applications. So things like quantum cryptography and, and quantum algorithms can run on this universal quantum computer but also um, would allow us to understand quantum theory, which is uh, one of the most fundamental theories of physics we have at present, much better than, than we, we did at the start. So I think there are some issues at the basics of the foundations of quantum theory, which, are, which were still un, un, um, to be uncovered at, at, in the 80s. And I think now we understand them much better thanks to quantum information. 
Now, the interesting thing about quantum computing is that, um, well, on the one hand, there are lots of technological efforts going on at the moment to create this universal quantum computer, which will replace uh, the objects that we currently use as uh, our personal computers. Um, but, but there is another interesting thing, and this is the fact that uh, conceptually, uh, quantum computation in itself, if you look at it from the point of view of fundamental physics, is an unfinished revolution. So something is, is, is still to be done in order to complete this uh, conceptual revolution that was started in, in the 80s. Um, and this has uh, impacts both on, on theoretical physics, but also on computer science and also on technology. And constructive theory is, is, is um, connected to, to, to the way in which I, I, I imagine this revolution can be completed. So let's see why I say that quantum computation is an unfinished revolution. So um, when you open a book about quantum computing, I mean, might happen uh, if you if you're not a specialist it could be a bit of a an exotic experience but i think you can try and what you'll see is um a lot of equations that are based on the 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 dynamical equations of quantum theory so the the things that schrodinger and dirac and einstein and people like that came up with um at the start of the the past century are the very same equations, rules that are being used in order to power uh, the theory of quantum computation. And this is a bit weird because um, you would expect quantum computing being all about information and things that are more general than just a specific physical theory. You would expect it to be expressed in more general terms. Um, and it's not just an expectation that the one has uh, you know, an intuition is, is really, this is actually um, uh, an expectation that comes from the fact that in physics, we physicists know that our theories, even our best theories like quantum theory nowadays or general relativity or Newton's laws, for example, in the past, um, are bound to be changed because they are, uh, let's say, the current best guesses to understand the universe, but they might be wrong. And they might have to mo be modified. So, in fact, uh, most physicists expect quantum theory to be um, changed at some point in view of the fact that at present it doesn't quite um, accommodate a very important phenomenon of, of, of our universe, which is gravity. And, of course, Einstein there reminds us of the fact that gravity uh, is well described within physics by a theory, which is general relativity, but that theory doesn't quite go uh, together with, with quantum theory. So, so that's why we actually expect both theories to be changed. So from the point of view of quantum computing, this is a bit worrying because if our understanding of quantum computing is really only based on, on quantum theory's uh, dynamical laws, and if at some point these laws will be changed, so then the question is, is, is quantum computing still um, going to survive then? So one question... Uh, through which we can try to go beyond quantum computing as we know it at, right now is, can we find a way of formulating um, quantum information theory or quantum computation theory in a way that doesn't rely fully on, on the um, apparatus of, of, of this theory of physics as we call quantum theory? So how do we go beyond the dynamical laws of quantum theory and still retain 
uh, or improve actually on our understanding of, of quantum computation. So that's the first question. Um, there's also another sense in which quantum computing is not, is not the whole story, uh, is not the, you know, the, um, that there's something beyond the universal quantum computer. And, and this is the title of this slide. So it's the fact that uh, despite the name, when you think of uh, a universal computer, you're not referring to the most universal machine that one can conceive of. And here we, we need to, to have a little thought about this. So um, a universal computer is, is a machine, a computer that can um, perform all computations that are physically allowed computations. And this is something that Turing and then uh, Deutsch uh, and, and also other pioneers um, understood very well when they, when they uh, approached this concept within their own respective fields. But there are some tasks, some processes or transformations that um, the universal computer, classical or quantum, cannot perform. So there are things that go beyond the capabilities of, of this machine. And the most important one, which is interesting for us for, uh, for various reasons, is the task of creating a replica of um, oneself. So when you think of, let's say, the task of um, self-reproducing uh, a cell, so you've got a cell, the cell is self-reproducing, is creating a new instance of itself, a new replica from raw materials. Um, that task is actually seems very straightforward uh, from the point of view of, of biology, but turns out that a machine like the um, a universal computer although it can be programmed to simulate that um, behavior within its um, workspace, it cannot itself create a new instance of, of, of itself. So, you know, imagine you could program your Mac or your PC to assemble a new computer out of raw materials. That's not possible. It's just not something that a, a computer is designed uh, to, to do. And yet it's a physical process. It's possible. It's allowed by the laws of physics. So this tells us that there is a more universal machine than a universal computer. So that's why we need to, to upgrade um, quantum computing to include these machines as well. And these machines are called universal constructors. So this is an idea that John von Neumann, polymath, uh, great uh, physicist and mathematician, um, already understood in the, in the 50s. Uh, even before the discovery of DNA, so this was quite cool. Um, so he, he, he understood, completed the logic of self-reproduction. And in that context, he defined uh, this idea of a universal constructor, which is a machine that can be programmed to perform any task or any physical transformation that is physically allowed. So if you, if you don't want to go into the details of this definition, you can just think of it as a, as a, as a universal 3D printer. Uh, in the sense that it's, a, it's an object that you, you, know, you, you, you load with a program describing what you want to be built. And so long as th the thing you're writing in the program is allowed by the laws of physics, whatever object you're considering, um, with the right program, this machine will assemble it for you, uh, given enough raw materials. And we don't have a theory for this machine. So we know it, it, we can define it uh, you know, in, in principle, but we don't have a, a theory that explains to us what are the physical limitations of this machine, 
under what conditions these machines can be built, um, and so on. And that's the second sense in which the, the theory of quantum computing um, should be generalized, because you would like to have a theory of quantum constructors, of universal quantum constructors, that are like the upgraded version of universal quantum computers. And why is this exciting? Well, it's exciting because we already know that the universal quantum computer is bringing us very close to um, possibilities that, that we couldn't even imagine just with classical machines, with classical computers. And the theory of the universal constructor, even though it could be very far in the future, um, could be uh, bringing about um, a, 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 the next uh, technological revolution, which could be comparable to the IT revolution that we've had uh, just now. So let me try to explain now the logic of how one could answer these two questions. So we got two questions. Questions are good in physics because, in fact, in science in general, or in, in, even in philosophy, um, the, the que questions are actually problems. And these problems are um, interesting because they tell us that despite the success of quantum computing, there is a lot more to be done and to be understood further than that. Um, and so one can think of, of ways of answering these two questions. So how do we generalize quantum information so that it becomes independent of quantum theory um, and also it can include uh, machines that are more general than, than quantum computers? And the answer, surprisingly, comes from, well, maybe not so surprisingly, um, comes from taking a look at, at how physics uh, formulates explanations. And I think... So this is the second part of the of this short presentation where I'm telling you where uh, the, um, the, the gist of the answer to these questions comes from. So as I said, I think um, physics can, can, can be considered as a, as a collection of, of guesses about how the universe works in its most fundamental ways. And I think uh, we really only have a handful of good guesses, laws that work, as rules that are good for making predictions and, and also are, are not just rules for making predictions, but they provide satisfactory, unproblematic explanations of, of physical reality. And these laws are, are, are written here in part. So we've got Newton's laws, Maxwell's equations, and these are, this is the classical part of physics. Um, and then we have the recent theories, general relativity uh, and quantum theory, that, as I said, were discovered at the start of the last century. Um, and, and so together, all of these laws are the best guesses we've had so far, as far as, um, as, far as the, you know, guessing how objects move in, in space-time is concerned. And there is one trait, so the, all of these laws look very different, but there is one specific thing that they have in common and, and that makes them um, very similar to one another. And it's the fact that they all rely on a specific uh, way of formulating predictions, which is that uh, they, a bit like in this little cartoon over here, uh, they are based on dynamical laws. And dynamical law is like a, um, a description of the, the, the set of points in, in space or in space-time that an object goes through um, given some initial conditions. And I think even though in this case we're only looking at a football being uh, kicked inside the goal, um, 
and of course you can use Newton's laws to, to describe the football, but you can also describe this uh, through uh, general relativity and quantum theory, and you will get the same predictions at this scale. Um, these laws are very general, so you can do this for um, this specific example, but you could do it for the whole universe. And in fact, the goal of fundamental physics formulated in this way is to really give just the trajectory of all particles that constitute the universe. And once you've given that and the initial conditions, you've explained, um, well, let's say, most things that are to be explained. So that's the kind of logic behind this way of looking at the world. However, there are other ways of, of uh, expressing physics. And, and I think you, you, you must know about these things because they are everywhere in, in um, let's say, in, in, the, in, in thermodynamics and in other branches of physics that we've all somehow met one way or another. Um, and I've, I've written here three examples of these other kinds of laws that I want to call physical principles. Uh, the, the, these three examples are um, very uh, famous in some sense, so maybe the first two are more, are more known. So you see on the left uh, this conservation of energy, which uh, says that, that the, the energy of, a, of, a, of, a, of an isolated system can't uh, change. So if, if energy changes somewhere in the universe, there must be somewhere else in the universe where the energy uh, is changing in such a way that the first change is compensated. So, you know, if it, there, is a, there is a sense in which overall um, the, the total energy of the universe has to be conserved. And this also implies that you can't build a perpetual motion machine of uh, the first kind, which is uh, supposed to be, uh, I mean, this is an example of, of, a, of an impossible motion, uh, the one, the, the thing I represented here on the left. And so, so the conservation energy basically says that certain transformations are impossible. Specifically, it's impossible to build a perpetual motion machine of the first kind. And the second law of thermodynamics, which is the one in the middle here, also says that some transformations are impossible. So it says that, that you can't turn um, heat completely into useful work um, with no other side effects. If you could, then you could use, let's say, the thermal energy of the sea in order to power a boat um, and, and make it um, proceed uh, you know, through the waves. And of course, we know that can't be done. And, and this is not just an accident, it can't be done because there's a law that says it can't be done, and that's the second law. And the third law that I reported there, which is actually not um, a law about impossibility, but it's about possibility, is the computability of nature, which says that a, a universal computer is possible. And there's a question mark there because we, we really don't know, although the first, so the first two laws are well established, the third one is a bit um, un, un, well, controversial or unsettled yet. But I think um, it, it's interesting that it's formulated in terms of um, a statement about what is, what is possible. And so this is a declaring that a certain transformation can be done. And there, for your amusement, I uh, report, you know, I, I I put this nice cartoon, um, which comes from an illustrated um, story about the first uh, attempt to create a universal computer, which um, dates back to the Victorian era. 
And uh, this is um, uh, Charles Babbage, this guy over here. He was a scientist uh, in the UK who, who devised this uh, machine called the analytical engine, which uh, the whole of it actually should have worked just like uh, a computer does. Uh, so it, it, it would have been the first programmable computer available uh, to humanity. And... Um, and then here is uh, Ada Lovelace, who, is, uh, who was the, his collaborator. And she um, was the first to understand that this machine, this universal computer, could actually be used not just to make, not just to compute, um, to churn out numbers, but to, uh, to do many more general things. And I think um, she was even thinking of using it to produce music or poetry and so on. So I think two of them really pioneered the idea of, of the computability of nature, the fact that a universal computer is possible. It's a shame that they couldn't build a computer, lack of funding. You know, these problems are present now as then. Um, but I, I think it's very remarkable that they, that they had this, uh, this intuition. So anyway, to go back to our, to our point, um, the gist of this slide is that the principles that are in physics, um, such as these ones, are not about dynamics. So there are no dynamical laws, not like in the case of Newton's laws, uh, but they are about, so they are statements about possible and impossible transformations. So they say some transformations can be um, done and others can't. And so here comes the intuition. So is it possible in order to answer the questions that we started with about generalizing quantum computing, is it possible to take inspiration from these kind of laws, the principles about possible and impossible transformations that already exist in physics, and generalize them and uh, formulate the whole of physics in terms of these statements? Is that going to give us, um, as a byproduct, also a generalization of the theory of computation? It sounds like a crazy idea, but that is what constructive theory is about. And the idea is not so crazy if you look at it very carefully. So, um, so here is how uh, I introduce now constructive theory's program. So this is a program for a, it's a long-term program for a, for a scientific um, you know, project that can be developed in the future. So the, the idea is that instead of defining physical laws um, in terms of dynamics, so like instead of using Schrodinger's equation or Newton's laws or Einstein's equation and so on, uh, you take laws about um, that are expressed as, as statements about tasks being possible uh, or impossible. And then, so generalizing these principles that I just mentioned, and then you try to derive dynamics and initial conditions um, from these statements as emergent consequences of the principles. So you're somehow switching um, the standard way of looking at the standard way of formulating laws of physics, which is in terms of dynamics. Um, and you're trying to, to put the statements about possible and impossible transformations at the foundations, and then you derive the, the, the statements about dynamical laws as a consequence of those, of those other statements. Um, and this is... So it's very interesting that if you do this, you also solve the problem about um, 
generalizing quantum computing because what you get out of this procedure is automatically a generalization of quantum computing to uh, general tasks. And this is actually what provides the theory of the universal constructor. So following the constructor series program in this way also delivers um, a potential answer to the questions that I, I presented at the start. So let's see, um, to summarize, let's say what the two roles the constructor theory is expected to play. And I think um, my work and, and David's work in this field and the work of our collaborators shows that these two, um, that, that this, this is actually um, happening. So this is quite, quite exciting uh, because it's, it's something that's happening right now. Um, so, so on the one hand, you see that constructor theory is a, a candidate to expand on the theory of computation uh, in, the, in the two ways that I said. So um, because it doesn't rely on dynamical laws, but only uses statements about possible and impossible tasks, it automatically, it, well, doesn't rely on, on quantum theory. So it allows us to generalize the quantum theory of computation to a domain where quantum theory may not hold anymore. And... Uh, we hope that this is going to be uh, the basis for delivering the theory of the universal constructor. And ultimately, once you have a theory of the universal constructor, you will also be able to, um, to construct a universal constructor. So that's, that's let's say, the, the very, very long-term goal that, that, we, that we have with this theory. And at the same time, uh, the interesting thing, for, for let's say, from the physics point of view, is that the theory, constructive theory, has this um, novel physical principles that, that generalize the existing principles that we have in physics, such as those that I mentioned to you earlier. Um, and, and these nice principles of constructive theory have a very interesting feature. So they are, um, they are general, so they can apply to systems that don't necessarily obey the current um, dynamical laws that we know. And the chief um, physical system that comes to mind when you talk to a physicist about this issue is quantum gravity. So as I said earlier, gravity is this uh, weird entity that is very well described by the theory of um, relativity, uh, but unfortunately it doesn't quite fit with quantum theory. So if you have an object which is a hybrid object that involves both quantum effects and gravity, uh, you can't use either of the theories. You can't use Einstein's theory and you can't use quantum theory. But you can use constructor theory's principles. And this is very promising. Um, and, and let's say this is the second way in which constructor theory can deliver um, to us very interesting results because it, it allows us to, uh, to go and probe areas where current current uh, dynamical laws are not, are not directly applicable. And so to end on a positive note, this is a recent application of this, uh, of this logic, uh, which was very exciting to the physics community. You can um, explain uh, how to test um, non-classical effects in, in gravity uh, by using uh, only constructed theoretic principles. And this is very nice because it's, I would say, it's the first application of constructor theory that um, connects these general principles with experiment. 
And so um, I think on this, on this note, I'll just end this short presentation and I'm very happy to continue the discussion with you uh, when I kind of stop the share. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much. Amazing. Um, okay, very understandable. <laughs> Too well done uh, on that. Um, I, I already see, I, I guess, already five uh, questions collected in the chat. So this is for me an invitation to everyone who would like to join the queue and ask a question uh, to just preface your question with a queue in the chat. And uh, we'll start right off the bat with Ted Hawk, and I'll unmute you if you don't mind. Hi, and, uh, Ted, okay, yeah, you thank can, you. Um, Ted, Ted, perhaps, Ted, perhaps you can uh, also say a few words, just uh, your background, if it's Sure, so, so my name is Tad Hogue. I'm a physicist by background. I've done some work on quantum computing algorithms and have been involved with foresight and molecular machines for, for many years. Uh, so my, my, my question um, is, you, you, at the very beginning, you talked about the, the conflict, so to speak, between quantum mechanics and general relativity and the need eventually for a better, more, more, more complete theory. Um, but also physics has this notion, what's called an effective theory, that, that quantum mechanics works perfectly well at sort of everyday scales and gravity is not so big and so, uh, not so strong and so on. So in terms of a theory of computation, isn't what we already have with quantum mechanics for sort of everyday Earth-based you know, computing likely to be perfectly sufficient in terms of what a computer that we could build on Earth could ever do? Yes. So this is an interesting question that um, so that points. So I think it's got two answers. One is is more foundational, and the other one is maybe more on the practical side. So um, I prefer the foundational one. So mm -hmm. I those are the say, more fun ones. Yeah. Yes. So in a sense. You're right that, that one could, could have a pragmatic take on things and say, well, uh, as you said, if, you know, if, if quantum theory is um, effective, at least at the scales where we are expecting to be able to build uh, computing machines, then, then why worrying about, uh, about other effects and incorporating more general theories and so on? Um, so I think that the, um, the foundational answer to this is that when you're thinking of as a purist um, to uh, a, a theory of information and you look at the, at the classical theory of information that let's say uh, on, on which Shannon and, and other things are, I mean, Shannon's theory and, and uh, the classical theory of computation are based. You see that the, the dynamical laws of uh, classical physics feature very little and, and it's the theorems and the, the, the statements are made in, in very general terms. So it's, they're made in terms of distinguishable states and, and permutations of those states. And then, um, you know, there are some results about channel capacity and so on. But when you switch to quantum computing, on the other hand, um, as I said, when you open a book uh, about quantum computing, it's really quantum theory uh, dressed in, in some computer science language. And being a physicist, I'm very happy about that. You know, I quite like that. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, if I look at this from the information theoretic point of view, um, it would be much better to have a theory that's only expressed in terms of information theoretic concepts. So, for example, when you talk about entanglement or when you talk about um, the, the quantum advantage that comes with a certain algorithm, it would be nice to be able to explain in, in what sense, this just in terms of information theoretic concepts, why these things are different from the classical counterparts. 
And the, the only way in which you can do this at this stage, I think, is to just run uh, certain dynamical processes with unitary transformations or CP maps or whatever. And then um, out of that, you can distill uh, some kind of comparison. But it's very odd from the point of view of the foundations of information theory. And so this is a foundational answer. It, it would be nice to have a, a unified way of treating classical and quantum information in this general framework. The other answer, which is more practical, is that um, there are very uh, sensitive uh, clocks that currently are being built, which allow you to detect um, uh, effects like the gravitational redshift and, and, and uh, related effects already with, with very tiny masses. And so, in a sense, uh, quantum phases that could be used to perform quantum computations can be affected by gravity. And there have been a number of experiments, even though, uh, you know, still much has to be done. And so in a sense, I think I'm not so sure if it's so true that quantum computers can't be built at the scales where gravity is important. It's true that, that you, you want pro-gravity uh, where maybe GR is fully um, effective, but there is still a point where you have to reconcile, reconcile this fact that you've got a mass in a superposition of different locations, even, even tiny mass. Mm -hmm. And then you've got to uh, think, what does the gravitational field do at that point? And um, as, as we know, Einstein's theory um, suggests that the gravitational field is classical, so it cannot mm -hmm. be in quantum superpositions. And so how do you, how do you describe that? From the, even from the point of view of quantum computing, let's say you're using a tiny atom to perform a quantum mm -hmm. computation, that atom has a mass and it gravitates. So, so that be, those are really interesting questions. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the question. All right, thank you. Okay, next one up, we have Alyssa's question. Alyssa, I'll meet you. Hey, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Perhaps you could also say one or two words about your background, just that Kiara has, an, uh, if you want to. Sure. Uh, so my name is Alyssa Vance. Um, I'm a senior core technology engineer here at uh, MCD Tech Labs, where uh, we are building a dialogue a conversational AI for the uh, McDonald's drive-thru. Yes. Um, so question, uh, uh, when you talked about uh, limitations on uh, classical computers, like uh, classical computers that uh, can't build uh, copies of themselves, um, are, are you referring to like engineering limitations that we have like, you know, in the year 2020, or are you referring to like some sort of more general or more theoretical limitation? Um, because we have one kind of limit where we like we know that computers will never be able to solve the halting problem or there's a generalization called rice's theorem where it's just like you know computers cannot do this ever and then we have things like oh you know it's the year in the year 2020 you know homo sapiens sapiens has not yet figured out how to do this you know but it may still be possible in the future like you know right now you know you can't do more than like you know 10 to the 13th computations per second per chip or something like that but that's not an inherent limitation that's just sort of like an engineering limit um so uh, could you clarify uh, what you meant by that? Yeah, this is a great question. I like it very much because I'm always, well, in theoretical physics, you're very interested in the foundational limitations. So not the one that's due to the lack of, in, you know, creativity or uh, lack of inventiveness or lack of money. Uh, but, but I think what we are interested in is really whether there is a fundamental limitation that really can't be overcome, no matter how, high, you know, how hard you try, you can't do a certain thing. And in this case, I think von Neumann was really referring to this um, logical impossibility. So the, 
that, so if you think of the architecture of a Turing machine, a Turing machine just has like it's a, a workspace, which is a tape. And uh, so all the, all the outputs that the Turing machine is supposed to, to produce are confined to that tape. So it's, it's uh, logically impossible for the Turing machine to also construct um, the rest of, the, of, of itself. So it can only operate on this uh, tape but in order to create a copy of itself, should be able to, it should be able to operate on, on, you know, on the other part that's not the tape, because it should be able to copy uh, in some way the full of its architecture into, let's say, um, a bunch of raw materials that are kind of floating about. And that cannot logically happen. It can, it can simulate the self, you know, reproduction of a cell, by suitable program, of course, cellular automata are all about that. But here is the question of whether it can create a copy of itself, uh, given, I mean, with, with, with a suitable instruction. And the von Neumann machine, or more generally, the universal constructor, has this feature. So it's, it, it, is, um, it is a programmable machine can, that can perform any task that's physically possible. And so if you assume that that thing, that, that machine is possible itself, then it must be possible to create a new instance of, of the machine itself. So, so I think that's why the, uni so the universal constructor is really a new class, represents a new class of machines that go beyond Turing machines because they can operate on other things than just uh, bits confined to a tape. Um, so, so in a way, it's a fundamental limitation. And I like your question very much. I think it's, it's a great question, yeah. Thank you. Thanks. All right, thank you so much. Next one up, we have Rowley. And Rowley, I hope I'm not, um, I, I'm not catching you off guard and I'm muting you, uh, you right now. Rowley, perhaps you could also say a word or two about your background uh, and then your question. Hello there. Hello. Cool. Hi, uh, yeah. Um, so my background is, uh, I'm interested in philosophy. And uh, so I started my studies in philosophy. And, that just kind of like, because I don't know know about this constructor theory, this new stuff for me. And I just kind of like that comment caught my eye with the idea of uh, nature being uh, the computability of nature. Yes. So is that like, so what, to, to what extent, like, is that to say that, you know, is that the question of is nature fundamentally mathematical somehow, or is this like an ontological question or more like an, uh, I mean, it's a huge, like, ontological question in philosophy, in a way. Yes. Uh, so, yeah. Is there some, like, that, is that the sort of strong sense in which you're suggesting that here now, or? Yes, I think, I think this is a, a very nice question because it, it touches on a subtle issue that, that sometimes causes um, some confusion as well in different fields. So, the... Um, so, when, when, let's say, in quantum computing, or at least in physics, we think of computations, uh, what we mean is, a, um, is, is some kind of function or uh, permutation or uh, transformation more generally of a bunch of input states uh, in, 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 in a bunch of output states. And the, 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 the additional thing that we want for this to be a computation acting on information degrees of freedom is that the input states are all somehow distinguishable from one another. Uh, but what I'm, just to answer your question, I think the, 
the computability of nature says something very specific once you have decided that this is your notion of computation. It says this, that if there exists um, a computer, a, a machine that when given specific inputs can perform one type of computation, let's say addition, and if it physically, I'm now thinking when I say it exists, I mean it exists given the laws of physics that we know. Uh, and if there is another machine, if another machine is allowed, which let's say perform another computation, for example, multiplication, then there must exist also a more general machine that can perform either of those given a suitable program. So you can think of a more general machine that when you say, I want these two numbers to be multiplied, perform multi performs multiplication. And when you say, I want them to be added, it will, do, it will perform addition. This means physically that you can compose these you know, computing machines in very specific ways. And it, uh, it's, it's an accident of the, of the laws of physics that we know. You can prove this through, like, a, with a theorem within quantum theory and within a discretized version of Newton's laws that, that they have this property. But it need not be. So there could be other models where, where you know, you've got, uh, a little, you know, lots of lots of tiny computing machines that can perform specific tasks. But if you want a universal computer, one like the one that we are using now, uh, you you can't build one. So at some point, you can't compose together further. Um, you know, uh, all of these um, spe spe special purpose computing machines. So the computability of nature is, is a kind of technical term, I suppose, that I was using to refer to this specific property. And now the, the, then there are these other, so there's a theory of computable functions in, in mathematics and so on, which refers to a specific model of computation, which is Turing's model and et cetera. And that's a, that's a different thing. So I, I was trying to be more general in the sense that this computability of nature can be re really defined under any uh, model so long as you have, let's say, some dynamical laws that tell you uh, what are the processes that are allowed. I hope that makes sense. Yes. Cool. Awesome. Thank you so much. Next one up, we have Mike. Hi, this is Mike. My background is mechanical engineering, design, and also the computer IT service. Yeah. Um, so I just want to comment, part of it sounds like the problem of the origins of life in a way that how you, we know how to create the primordial soup and chemicals, but we don't know how it actually starts as a self-replicating life. So this constructor theory kind of reminds me of the same kind of situation. Just an observation, but my question was, if you've looked at all a category theory, and apply that to this uh, constructor theory as a way to deduce what principles and laws there might be based on your observations. Yeah, that's a nice question. I I think the um, so the, the category theory is this very powerful mathematical um, uh, tool that that somehow powerfully generalizes set theory. And kind of upgrades it in a dramatic way, and and I think um, although at the stage of the current stage, so constructive theory is formulated more in the context of set theory, 
But I think the, so, you know, one of the students is working with me. Um, um, he, he's interested in translating the current results of, of constructed theory within category theory because that appears to be the most natural language. So I, I like your question because it's very, is somewhat related to a current development in, in my own research with, with this collaborator of mine. Uh, and, and I think it's, um, it's very important to express uh, the theory in more um, effective mathematical ways because, of course, once you do that, then you can see even more uh, connections that you maybe wouldn't otherwise be able to see. Um, and about the origin of LiQuest, I mean, comment, I think the... Um, so the so the concept of a constructor is possibly i mean i think it it is related with to to life in some sense in the sense that um, i didn't go into these details but i think what von neumann called the constructor is could be is generalized in, in physics and in biology uh, with anything that can affect the transformation on a physical system and stays unchanged in the ability in its ability to cause the this transformation again so it's it's something that works in a cycle and so obviously um cells and and uh, organisms uh, had this property but the so the, the the interesting thing about constructive theory is that we are trying to um so despite being called constructive theory uh it's a bit like with relativity uh, the, the theory is not about constructors. Constructors are the things that you abstract away from the description because all the laws are about possible and impossible tasks. And a task is possible if you have, um, if, if that can be a constructor that performs it, and it's impossible if there cannot be one. And so by, by restricting your statements to whether a task is possible or impossible, you are avoiding the the issue of enumerating the constructors, saying where they come from and and uh, how they have to be constructed. So in a way, you you are abstracting away the issue of where do the constructors come from. But I I think um, you're right that that there is a strong connection with biology, at least at, at the you know uh, conceptual level when you're talking about constructors. And for Neumann. Uh, was motivated by biology when he he made these remarks about the universal constructor because he was trying to understand how life fits into the laws of physics, uh, which of course it does. But I think at the time it wasn't quite clear because we didn't know about DNA yet and and things like that. So, um, yeah. Anyway, thanks. Great. Yeah, okay. I was just, yeah, polymerase and DNA looks so much like a Turing machine, the way it operates. So, yeah. Indeed, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Okay, well, thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, lovely. Okay, next one up, we have Logan. Hi, I'm Logan. I'm a science writer. Hello. So you said in your talk that you um, hope to maybe deduce the boundary conditions uh, from these constructive theoretic principles. So I'm guessing that includes, let's say, the initial state of the universe, hopefully. But do you think constructive theory has anything to say about maybe the final state of the universe if people don't intervene between now and then, for example? Yes, I think, I think the, so the, 
the program, so that part of the program hasn't been, so we, we, we haven't uh, realized it yet, but I think the, um, the expectation is exactly as you were saying to, um, well, once, you, once you lay out all of these statements about possible and impossible transformations, you can um, find ways of showing which laws, which dynamical laws and which initial conditions or boundary conditions are compatible with, with those uh, statements. Um, so in, in a sense, because of the, well, uh, one would expect that the dynamical laws that are compatible with the principles are of the form that we know already now. So for instance, general relativity and quantum theory, uh, should be compatible with constructor theory's principle. And we know quantum theory is compatible and general relativity, uh, also most likely is. So be- because those laws are time reverse symmetric, um what so that means that that um they are the same whether you know when you're evolving them from past to future uh they are the same as from future to past um once you make statements about the initial conditions uh the same statements should be possible to make about the final conditions so so because of the symmetry of the laws I would expect that once, you know, if you, if you manage to say something about the initial conditions of the universe, you should be able to say something about the final conditions. Um, so hopefully, yes. The answer is yes to what you asked. But of course, we have, we have to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the question. For the question. Thank you. All right. We are making progress on, uh, on the question. So if, if there's others that still want to collect theirs, we may even get to them. Um, so let's see. Next one up, we have... Jesse, Jesse Nichols, I will unmute you now. Hey, uh, so I was wondering about the rationale or epistemology that this work comes from. Uh, I asked because I know the context of this organization is a bit uh, on the more Bayesian side. So I wondered, uh, how does this theory uh deal with credences or probabilities? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, the, um, so I think the, so in a way these, these uh, questions are uh, more at the meta level. In, so, you know, it's a bit like uh, the same question could be asked about uh, current, like uh, current dynamical laws, right? So quantum theory or, or uh, uh, Newton's laws and so on. And for all laws, including, I think, constructor theory, um, for all laws we know right now, the deterministic structure comes first. So if you think of all this, these laws that we have, so there's Newton laws, Max's equations, um, quantum theory, and general relativity. And in all those cases, you have a dynamical transformation, which is deterministic. So, you know, in Newton's laws, you, you know what the dynamical laws are. And then in quantum theory, Schrodinger's equation is also deterministic in the sense that it evolves this quantum state deterministically from one time to another and so on. Um, in quantum theory, there is a bit of a complication because when you make a measurement on the quantum state, then there is a probabilistic outcome. But um, if you describe everything uh, from the point of view of the whole universe, the, and if you believe that quantum theory applies at the level of the whole universe, which is what quantum theory seems to say, then the whole universe is evolving really deterministically and the 
appearance of stochasticity is really only to do with the, with the measurement events. So um, overall, it's all deterministic. And likewise, I think in constructed theory, the fundamental statements are deterministic. So when we say a task is possible or impossible, there is no probability involved in that statement. However, you can uh, accommodate or derive probability within uh, those from from those statements. So you, you have like uh, some axioms that are don't involve probabilities, but you can derive derive the you know certain uh, probabilistic statement out of those axioms, just like in quantum theory. And the so so this is as far as probability uh, are concerned. For credences, this is even more abstract because this is refers, let's, let's say, so, to a certain theory of uh, confirmation of, of science, of, let's say, uh, theory confirmation within scientific method. And I think constructive theory is agnostic about that in, in a way. So, so if, you know, if, you, if you approach theory confirmation from the Bayesian point of view, uh, you will be able to apply it to constructive theory as much as you can with, with other uh, physical theory that that we theories that we have at the moment uh and then you know i'm happy to discuss about bayesianism as well uh i mean my my inclination is that i you know i tend to i tend to think of things in in a more popperian way uh so so i think bayesianism maybe is not so necessary uh but i don't think it would you know if, you, if you're a bayesian yeah exactly if you're a bayesian i think um you can still you know take um the, the whole constructive theory makes sense of it, just like you would with another physical theory. But, you know, if you ask him about my own bias, I think I, I tend to think that Bayesianism is um, not completely adequate to explain theory confirmation and sometimes a bit misleading. Thank you. I hope that answered the question. Yeah, cool. Awesome. Thank you so much. Next one up, we have Dennis. Dennis on you. Hey, can you hear me? Yeah. Great. Hi, a great talk. Nice to meet you. Uh, my name is Dennis. I'm a software engineer, and uh, I'm interested in the mind, uh, particularly within a Popperian and Deutschian epistemological framework. Um, so I'm interested if you've learned anything from constructive theory about how the mind may work, or if that's if you've had any insight on that. So I think the, um, the, so the answer is yes. I think the, well, so we haven't had an insight into that specific problem yet, but I think what I am hoping is that, and what I think David also is, is uh, interested in, is that the conceptual tools that constructive theory provides will allow you to tackle this problem in a radically different way. And, and um, so the stage is just a hope, but I think there are reasons to, to expect that. And the main reason is that um, when you discuss, uh, well, the mind in a, in a sense is, is an entity that creates a particular kind of information, which you can think of as, as a resilient kind of information that also has causal uh, power on, on the environment. And this is some, uh, something that you can call knowledge. Right. That's the, the term that I think David uh, and I also use to refer to that. And this particular kind of information in constructive theory can be characterized in a very, in an objective way. So you can talk about it as um, a copyable set of states with other uh, specific 
uh, information theoretic properties that I can then list if you like. But I think the uh, important thing is that you can characterize what knowledge is in, in terms of possible tasks without ever referring to subjective, um, scale-dependent, approximative concepts. And this is nice because uh, usually in, in the series of how knowledge is created, you get a lot of these, um, well, uh, sometimes some stochastic um, sort of approaches. Other times you have some subjective ways of this, this, defining minds and, and things like that. And it's very hard to have an objective um, handle on these concepts. And that's problematic because for, uh, well, for scientists like me, um, you know, it's, it's important to have a way of objectively describing or handling concepts even before ever creating a theory about them. So the hope is that once you have this concept available, you can then make a theory of the kind of physical objects that can create knowledge like, for example, minds, or even, well, I mean, the other thing that creates knowledge is natural selection, which creates it in a much less efficient way. Uh, but th these are the only two things that we know of in the universe that can cre create this kind of information. And so the theory doesn't exist yet, but I think it, the, the, um, so the conceptual tools that constructor theory provides will be very useful to develop on. And so there are also applications to, I think, AI uh, and, and AGI. So, so, and David is very interested in this kind of stuff. I'm also quite interested. And, and you know, of course, this is not my main focus because I'm a physicist. I, I, I think this will, I'm hoping that someone in the field of, of AGI will notice these kind of comments and the concepts and they will use them. And um, I mean, you, you already see that there are some people in that field who are trying to get away from the standard way of thinking about um, stochastic, sorry, about, about uh, learning and, and uh, uh, machine learning and things like that. You know, there's Julia Pearl who has this nice theory about counterfactuals, which is trying to get away with standard concepts, away from the standard concepts. So I think there is a need for these concepts and hopefully Constructive will provide some. Right on. Thank you. Yeah. Amazing. Hey, Kiara, I'm realizing we're now one minute past the hour. Um, I, we have three more questions. I'm not sure how you're doing on time. Um, I think I can take three more questions. Yeah, it's fine. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, lovely. I know those folks will be very happy. Um, okay, then uh, without further ado, Yasha, your question is next. And I'm going to post a little bit more info uh, on those salons uh, here in the chat for those of you who have to uh, jump off and for those of who, um, for you whom it was the first time for joining. But for now, we have Yosha. Hi, Yosha. Hi, I'm Yosha Bach. I'm an AGI researcher. Um, yeah. I'm uh, quite interested in uh, David's and your theories, uh, but I don't yet understand how constructive theory goes beyond constructive mathematics. That is, uh, how can it compute things that... A uh, finite state machine, for instance, cannot compute in principle. I don't think that uh, uh, recreating yourself is an issue. This uh, a program that uh, reproduces its own source code is uh, basically, it's called a quine, and it's a hobby that computer scientists have had successfully for quite some time. And uh, so I didn't understand your metaphor of a 3D printer uh, for the constructor uh, in this sense. I do understand that uh, you can take the constructor theory um, as a methodological approach that um, basically puts computer science in a slightly different hierarchy. But I don't see 
um, an ontological difference and I don't understand the ontological statement that you and David are making when you say that you can compute things that uh, uh, other computers cannot. Right. So the statement isn't of, so I think construct, that was part of the motivation and in a way it's for Norman's statement and I, I'm just repeating what he said. So I'm more, more or less parroting someone that was, was already ahead of, um, you know, even biologists in a sense. I think the point that von Neumann made, um, which is somewhat motivating the whole idea of a constructor, which should be a more general machine than a Turing machine, is that um, if you take a Turing machine, uh, yes, you can have programs inside the Turing machine that can self-replicate, or you can have, uh, well, the Turing machine simulating in, within with a specific program the behavior of a cell that's self-reproducing but there is no instruction you can put in the Turing machine that would get the Turing machine to create a replica of itself out of elementary materials simply because the Turing machine doesn't have well doesn't even have the the tools to do that in a sense right so you would need arms to like assembles the keyboard you know if you're thinking of a of a modern Turing machine um, you, you would need your computer to be augmented with a number of, of other, uh, well, working arms that, or, or, you know, uh, various tools that you would... So this is about the substrate. Say again? It's about the substrate, in other words. So, uh, of course, you, uh, if you are uh, in no, a virtual about... world, you can create another virtual world that has no, the same no, properties no. as the virtual it's, world. But... Yes, there's no space in the Turing machine model. The, the only thing that the Turing machine can operate on is its tape. And there's no way that the Turing machine can create on its tape um, a new instance of itself. It doesn't even work. So if you think of the Turing machine physically, it, it just doesn't look, So it's not possible for this to occur. Well, there is no space. Space is not computable. What we observe is a set of locations and trajectories that information can take. That is what physics is about. And uh, the space is something that exists in the limit when you look at too many of these locations to count and too many trajectories to count. Then you get to a space. But uh, you can see that there are singularities in this space um, that are unavoidable. So space itself is not mathematically consistent. There can be space that works exactly like the space that you and me observe inside of a Turing machine. No, course. no, but I think I'm now thinking of, the, of just the discretized model that can support the Turing machine. So I'm not thinking of some exotic physical theory. I'm just thinking of the, the discretized model of classical physics that, that within which you can define the model of the Turing machine. Um, so the program that's, you know, the point that this, this program that can self-reproduce within the Turing machine, it's not really performing self-reproduction in the way that, uh, cells do because it's using the error correction mechanisms that's already within the Turing machine. And it's using, uh, a lot of other bits of the environment in which it is self-reproducing, which, um, don't, uh, exist, let's say in the, in the, in the biosphere, when you're trying to to look at what happens when a cell self reproduces, so so it's conceptually different from from the self reproduction that occurs in a cell. And I think von Neumann was interested in that. On top of it, von Neumann was really to, just talking about the Turing machine as a whole. So it wasn't interested in a specific subpart of it being able to let's say replicate. Um, it was interested in the, the question. 
I define a task which is self-reproduction. Can the Turing machine execute it? And the answer is on itself. So like, um, I mean, there are different ways of self-reproducing. You can, you can either have an entity look at its various details and then try to reassemble itself out of raw materials directly by inspection. Uh, but that's very prone to errors. And then, of course, there's the von Neumann logic, which is the correct one for high accuracy self-reproduction, which is that you have like a description of the whole architecture, basically DNA. And then uh, that thing gets copied uh, bit by bit. And then the the uh, initial entity that's self-reproduced thing executes that program in order to create a new instance of itself. And the Turing machine doesn't have the space for this kind of stuff. It just does not um, logically support this type of um, instruction. At best, it can do something on its tape, and that won't include creating a new Turing machine on its tape. It's just that's not part of the Turing machine architecture. Um, I mean, von Neumann has a nice article on this. It's dated 1950 or something, and, and it's, it's very nice. So, you know, I can, I can send it to you if you want. Um, yes, please. Thank but you very much. Not, yeah, yeah, it's not something that David and I claim. In a sense, constructed theory is just taking the, the motivation to go beyond quantum computing to have a theory about these machines that can uh, act on more general transformations that are not just computations. Um, and this is this is all what that reference to von Neumann was intended to achieve. Mm-hmm. I hope it didn't it didn't kind of uh, confuse too much. It didn't confuse, but I'm not yet uh, sure about the answer. But thank you very much for your effort. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for the question. <laughs> thank you. All right. Well, maybe we can find the paper and share it even in the chat. Yes, you if I find it later. That's amazing. Thank you. Next one up, we have Ted Howard. Ted, I'll unmute you. Hi, Ted. Thanks, Alison. Um, uh, look, what is Hello. the role in constructed? Hi. Um, what's the role in constructive theory for fundamental uncertainty? Um, like I heard you. I was interested in Jesse's response and Joshua's question. Um, they're both aspects of what I'm pointing at. You seem to be coming from the idea that you can have something which is tightly constrained that can approximate causality. But what if the universe we live in is constructed from infinities and if Garrett Lissy has something in the idea that what we see as order is something that falls out of the symmetries that are allowed in infinities when the symmetries are only like collector states where things tend to modulate, but actually all infinities are allowed or any instance of an infinity is allowed then you're dealing with something that's fundamentally uncertain and the order that we have um, is an approximation so it's we're back to uncertainties does constructor theory allow for that sort of approach or is it where, where the constructors are themselves fundamentally uncertain yes i think the so um well, the way in which uncertainty can come into physics, uh, so there are several ways. So one one is the one you mentioned. Uh, the other one is, of course, through quantum theory. Um, and I think the so the, the key here is that uh, let's take you know a theory with infinity, um, for example, 
you know, quantum field theory or field theory in classical physics has uh, lots of infinities there. But you can still define uh, within that theory um, a set of possible transformations. And so, um, so that doesn't mean that all the states of that theory, when transforming to one another, are um, free of, of uncertainty or free of infinities or free of whatever else. But you can uh, distill a subset of the um, properties of physical systems that obey that theory for which the statement a certain task is possible um, is valid and meaningful and consistent. So I think constructive theory is aiming to provide constraints on physical theories so that um, they must be expressible, at least in, in, in part, uh, through these statements about possible and impossible tasks. If they cannot be expressed in terms of possible and impossible tasks, then they don't obey uh, constructive theory, so they would be somewhat ruled out from the constructive theoretic picture of the world. It could be that constructive theory is wrong and those other theories are correct, and in which case, you know, that's that's. It would be nice to find an experiment that could tell those two things apart. Uh, but I wouldn't, you know, in the specific case you were referring to, I wouldn't know what experiment one could think of. But what I'm trying to say is that we are still within, you know, the classical physics dialogue in a way because um, constructive theory is just proposing a certain understanding or explanation of the of the world, and it could be that it's just wrong. In that case, in which case, you know, it's it's you know, we we, we should switch to something else mm-hmm. at some point. But we are not yet at the point where you can make a prediction and test it against something else. It seems to me that our human brains are heavily biased by the fact that. Yeah, evolution most heavily selects for things that respond quickly under urgency. So we're heavily biased to simplify things. So we have this bias that likes to take us back to binaries and that's it, and take us away from infinities and uncertainties. Um, and that seems to be yes, driving I- the direction that you're going in. So it's possible still, as a, the, my, then my first answer applies here because the first part of the answer, in the sense that you can still reconcile a structure which is highly counterintuitive, like let's say the structure of field theory, where you have infinities popping up everywhere with the presence of, uh, with the, presence of the definition of uh, an information variable, which is a completely discrete and finite set of states. Uh, so it's possible to construct a model that complies to this intuitive, um, discrete uh, type of structure within a theory that still allows for infinities and and um, continuum and so on, such as field theory. In other words, what we are saying is compatible with certain kinds of infinities, and and so I don't I don't see them in contradiction necessarily. It's just that the statements I'm making at the level of the possible and impossible tasks should be seen as the fundamental explanations for everything else and not the other way around. Yeah, it, it smacks of bias to me, but yeah, I can see why the bias is there. Well, as an I evolutionary suppose, biologist, by, yes, yeah, that, I, that's I my suppose, background. I suppose all, all things are biased. I mean, it's impossible to approach any problem without a bias. Everyone True. has a bias. It's just the background yes. knowledge we have. So in a sense... Um, yeah, I suppose, you know, the whole of quantum theory is biased or the whole of Newtonian <laughs> theory is biased. 
Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. And then we have Dan Gershevich. Dan, I'm going to unmute you now. Let's see. Harder to do than I thought. Sometimes it takes forever to unmute someone. Oh, now I muted him. Uh, now I muted him. Then I muted him again. Now Hello. And- <laughs> uh, Hi. Thank you um, for taking the time, Kara. Really appreciate it. Uh, I'm Dan. And for the last question, I guess, uh, I'm really curious about what constructor theory has to say about observer independent facts. There's a a paper I think I just posted to the chat about um, the inability for uh, modern physics to say certain things are objective. And it seems from what we've been talking about with probabilities uh, and what I know about how knowledge and constructor theory are tied together, that in a sense, it's a purely local or purely subjective approach. And that would it be fair to say you you wouldn't be able to say... uh, you wouldn't be able to make purely objective claims using constructor theory. Right. So, so I think the, as I was saying earlier in reply to another question, the, um, so the, the, the take uh, in constructor theory, which is actually, I would say the take in all other laws of physics we have is that um, the most fundamental entities are actually objective and they are observing independent. So, um, I know that there is, let's say, a you know, even in quantum theory, there is often a narrative about quantum theory that says that um, things are dependent on who is observing uh, what. For example, you know, there is this famous um, title of a famous paper saying, "Is the uh, whatever flux there if nobody looks so so the, <laughs> this is referring to the fact that when you have a quantum superposition of various values um, there comes a moment where someone is performing an observation of that superposition and suddenly one of the various values become real for that observer or or something like that now I think that's not uh, so this is an interpretation of quantum theory which seems to me is not correct and and uh, if you if you if you look at quantum theory properly, you take it seriously, and you're not uh, adding other assumptions on top. Quantum theory just tells you that there is an objective reality made of the quantum wave functions, and then the, the measurement is just another quantum interaction, and you can describe it all nicely and consistently. And every statement you can make about entanglement, superpositions, outcomes, probabilities, all of these things are objective, and they are observer independent in the sense that. Having fixed a coordinate system, um, everyone and you know, even people sitting in different coordinate systems will agree on what's happening. Module, of course, proper, you know, translating properly between their own way of predicting and the way of predicting of a different observer. Um, but the, the fact that, let's say, according to relativity, there can be, uh, you know, you can compute the probabilities of the outcomes of certain experiments in different coordinate systems doesn't invalidate the statement that the output that you get out of these calculations are referring to objective facts. And there's just one truth, one fact of, you know, truth of the matter uh, that refers to the physical system that you are describing. And I think this is true in all physical theories we have. In, in constructive theory, is the same. And to convince you of this, 
even if you don't want to go into constructor theory details, you can just take the conservation of energy, which is an example of a principle that has the same logic as constructor theory's principle, and it's well known because it's just already part of the structure of physics. When you say that energy is conserved in a certain physical theory, that is an objective statement. It doesn't depend on whether there are observers around or, or um, it doesn't depend on, on the you know, particular way of looking at the system in question. It is just a fact, and it just says that you know, if you've got the system with a certain energy, in order to change it, you have to bring the energy from somewhere else or take it away into move it to, to, to some other location in space-time. And that's it. And I think the, um, the spirit of the, you know, the logic behind all of the statements in constructive theory is very similar to, to, the, to the logic of the conservation of energy. So we are hoping that this approach is very much objective. Um, and I would be very wary of statements about observer dependence because although it's true that there are some, some quantities that, you know, in relativity you can express with different values in different reference frames or in different coordinate systems, that's one fact. But that isn't in contradiction with the fact that there are objective uh, entities in the theory of relativity, which are, you know, the symmetries of the laws and, and various other things that are actually the elements that we're using to describe physical reality. So I very much support, and I think I'm hoping constructor theory uh, does the same. I, I, I support the view that, that, let's say, science should provide some objective view of reality. All right. And Thank you so much. Even observers should be describable fully within the theory. That's one lesson that we got from quantum theory. Even macroscopic observers like us can be included in the laws of quantum theory, let's say, and I think constructive theories can can be applied in 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 a sense to to entities like like uh, macroscopic observers. Okay, thank you so much. I like I forgot one question by Harrison from earlier. Maybe um, you know uh, he could, if if you don't mind, he could ask the question, and then you can decide either to take it or to do, uh, and and maybe you could weave that into a few final remarks of a. Kind of like what's happening now is there a book coming out um, I think uh, I, I said that in the introduction but you know so that we have like a, a little uh, um, right. a little roundup of how we can find out more about you and I'll, I'll unmute Harrison and uh, I, I think the question is really worth it okay let's see Harrison you are muted hi Kiara uh, thanks so much for coming on I've wanted to learn more about this uh, stuff for a while and I think this idea um, that you have in your program, of taking uh, the sort of like possibility statements and making them sort of the primaries and the dynamical laws and making them, uh, you know, the epiphenomena of those primaries rather than the reverse as we see today is really cool. Uh, that being said, the primary content of like dynamical theory isn't just like there's a dynamical law, but like what the mathematical statement of those laws like is. And so I guess this is a question about like where you are in your research program. Can you give us a sense of what the mathematical statement of a constructor theory or several different constructor theories would look like in the same way that like Newtonian mechanics is an example of a compelling mathematical statement of this sort of like state and continuous transition function idea? Like what would the math of like, you know, what it is possible to construct look like? That's a nice question. I think the... Um... I started to mention something earlier in to a, you know in reply to another question the 
and and I think it's nice that you're kind of asking this because the um, uh, so the, the way in which the theory looks is very different from dynamical laws. It doesn't have dynamical laws directly, and the the basic formal objects are tasks, and these tasks are basically, uh, if I can use some jargon, they are sets of uh, states, input output states, um, and so being sets, you can. Uh, well, you can think of them as being composable with one another. So there's an algebra of these uh, tasks. And, and um, so the current way in which we're presenting our results is, is based on set theory combined with algebraic tools that describe the properties of the algebra of tasks. Uh, and, and then there are, there's a combination of, um, of, of, well, there are some rules that say how possible and impossible tasks composed together. Um, so so there, is, um, there is also a function, which is this function that tells you whether a task is possible or impossible. There's like a, a label that we, you put on top of these uh, sets. And I think the, these are very rudimentary mathematical tools, if you like. So, you know, if I've got, as I said, some collaborators who are trying to uh, rephrase these statements and results that we have, in terms of more sophisticated maths, which is basically category theory. So I think if you want to know what a constructor theory of, you know, fully fledged uh, theory of constructors would look like, um, sorry, I meant fully fledged constructor theory would look like in the future, it should be expressed with, uh, so it seems like the natural way of expressing it is category theory. Um, having said that, I think the current results are, um, mathematically rich in themselves. And I think it's possible to see this even with this set, set theory um, approach that, that we currently have. Um, and in fact, you know, if, if anyone has suggestions about, you know, different tools that one could use, uh, it would be welcomed, you know, because we, we are really exploring something very different from the standard, um, sort of the standard dynamical laws that you have in physics. And although it would be, it, these dynamical laws are compatible with what we say, the kind of statements and the proofs that we make are, are you know, just follow a different formal structure. So um, happy to get suggestions and uh, from, from anyone in the audience. Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Fawcett Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date or visit Fawcett.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations. So please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening.